Okay, Chris, before we do the pledge on this episode, I asked you to procure one paper towel tube. Got it. One rubber band. Yep. And one small piece of tissue paper. Okay. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is take the tissue paper and put it over one end of the paper towel tube. Uh-huh. And then affix it to the end of the tube by, by putting the rubber band around it. Okay, cool. Now, this will obscure our voices as we do the pledge. As you know, people who take the Pledge of Odenkirk are not obligated to reveal their identities to the whole world. That's right. what the premise of this is. Okay. Right? Okay. So now we'll begin. Doesn't mean our hearts aren't in it. Doesn't mean we're ashamed. It just means we're trying to be safe. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. All right. Odenkirk is he is my guy. Hold on, Chris. That was awful. Let's just start the show. All right. Hey, John. Hey, Chris. Well, uh, here we are again for the third episode of uh, uh, Saul Searching, where we recap and discuss uh, every episode of Better Call Saul. So, uh, uh, well, I'll ask you uh, from the start, before we get into the story this week, did you have any uh, 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 overarching things you want to say about the trajectory of how everything's going? Just in general, I thought it was an excellent deepening and expanding, expanding? An expansion of the world. (laughs) That um, shh, I'll edit that out. No, I like that. Keep that. The expansion of the world that that showed me again what this. Now that we know how this show is going to be different from Breaking Bad, or at least we have a better idea. I feel like we dove further into the tone of this show and this world this time, and I started to see like different colors and different kind of shots than we used to see on Breaking Bad. So I think this was the first two episodes were like setting up what this show might be, and this felt like it may have been kind of like the first episode of this show, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does feel like we, we continue to learn. We learned a lot this time. And starting with the crazy flashback at the opening of the show, introducing us to a whole nother timeline in Jimmy's life. Uh, back when, I don't know if this is 10 or 15 years ago, Jimmy was not a lawyer yet, and he is in jail being visited by Chuck, who is a lawyer, and uh, and he's in trouble. He's in jail. And we don't know what... Uh, he did, but it seems like he could get five years. Uh, some part of it, you know, maybe assault and damage of property and, and maybe a sex offender thing in there. And, uh, and he says, uh, oh, it's a, it's a simple Chicago sunroof. Like, what the heck is that? I tried to research this and found it looks, you know, if you Google it and hunt around, it looks as if everyone is Googling it and hunting around and no one knows what that means. And, uh, and of course, you know somebody has already gone on Urban Dictionary and here and there and elsewhere and tried to define it on their own. But I think all those things happened after the episode was aired. So one theory I liked was that uh, it could mean uh, uh, pissing into someone's sunroof <laughs> because you know that would uh, maybe lead to property damage, and someone could say you exposed yourself, and then you know somebody would get mad and you get in a fight. Uh, so, uh, but who knows what in the world it means? A Chicago sunroof sounds like a funny thing you might think up in a writer's room as, oh, this is what a con artist would call a certain type of scam. Right. We just have to name that. And, we, and, and also, you know, the point could be to keep it a secret from us right now and let us know later what kind of stuff he's 
up to. If he was urinating in someone's car, that that can lead to a sex offender charge without him having done something really unsavory, you know? Right. Either that or it turns out that he was a peeping Tom or a, or a flasher or something. Who knows what we could learn about him later. And also there's the question of uh, whether Chuck is going to defend him or not. You know, he says you got to promise not to keep doing all the stuff you're doing. And they kind of leave the scene with you not, po- you know, it looks like he's going to defend him, but you don't know for sure. I actually took the end of that scene to mean, I mean, maybe the obvious suggestion is Jimmy promises. Because uh, what Chuck basically says is, I think the line is, if you do this, do not make a fool of me. Right. Um, and then he also says, everything you're involved with is over. And that does suggest that, again, we may find out more about what that is, but we may just know this is the time when he started trying to do right by Chuck. Like, that, that this is when the current string of Jimmy McGill that we're seeing on the show began. I wrote down in my notes, did we just see Slip and Jimmy? You know, when he comes in right. and he's a little bit more loosey-goosey and he's a little bit more, uh, uh, like, I don't know, just there was something kind of less polished and it wasn't just the bad wig right right uh, a couple of things that i really noticed was i thought it was a neat reversal at the beginning with chuck having to leave his phone and keys before he visited jimmy oh right and the phone was giant it was you know one of those giant like as big as your head uh portables right so that gave us a clue as to the era it has to be after they had portable phones but before they they got them down to a pocket size right and um you know, the hair, I don't know, I, it, it did occur to me that even a show as great as Breaking Bad never got the wigs right in the like Walter White uh, flashback. <laughs> right. And I don't know, is, is it kind of a nod to like one of the, like part of the artifice of, of film storytelling when they, clearly they know, as high as the quality control is, they know that that hair looks fake and they would rather have a wig on them than just comb their hair a different way or style it slightly differently to make them look like a different period you know like yeah. for some reason even a show that has quality control like this still slaps a wig on a guy and it still doesn't look like their real hair but he's and he's acting a little younger without really making his face look younger to me it almost feels like this is part of the magic of watching a piece of entertainment you see all these signifiers that it was a flashback and and I actually had this discussion with my wife about I'd rather them slap a wig on an actor and have him act younger then have that weird thing where they cast someone 10 years younger who really doesn't look like they're going to turn into the character that we right. know. I have like two notes from this episode that are my first like, hey, slight criticisms. Are bad wigs just the norm? Yeah, I think it's just very hard to make someone a different age. And part of it is the hair. I think, you know, there's a such thing as a, you know, a $4,000 wig. Uh, but who wants to spend that? They're like, we'll be fine. And people suspend their disbelief. But I think the hardest thing about it is... It's even harder than when you flash forward and you you have to cast a 40-year-old and put a bunch of makeup on him and have him be an 80-year-old. Harder to turn a 40-year-old into a 20-something-year-old because men have this spread of their neck, you know, from when you're 18 up until you're 65 or something. It's like the testosterone just causes your neck to get slowly thicker and thicker and thicker. So the only way to, like, age you back down would be to, you know, like, like with Voldemort, they... They uh, uh, computer his nose away. You'd have to like computer yeah. the person's neck uh, down to down to skinny. The other thing I wanted to take away from that scene is that just like now, if you look at that scene with Chuck, Jimmy tries everything. Like in the space of that five minute interaction, he tries being glib. He tries ap- appealing to his sympathies. He's defensive, alternating with just being plain spoken. He even tries a look. We all know I can do better, and that doesn't work. And he, in the end, he just basically has to say, "Please help me," you know, like "Help me, help me, help me." Um, but it, it, he's the same Jimmy that we know now. He he changes his tactic three yep. times in the the one conversation. 
Right, right. Well, and he comes in, he says, here's Johnny. So there's your uh, movie of reference, or Tonight Show reference of, of the week, but it makes me think of The Shining, so movie reference of the week. Well, no, I would actually say, I would actually, it's funny that you mentioned that, because, I mean, I don't know if we want to jump ahead, but since you did bring that up, in the first scene, when he comes in to see Chuck, he's Johnny, in my mind. He's Johnny Carson. Yeah. Here's Johnny. When he busts in on the uh, the Kettleman's in the tent at the end, he's Jack Nicholson right. from The Shining, saying, right. here's Johnny. Yes, but yes, it's your it's your reference. It's your it's, it's your seventies eighties uh, uh, pop culture reference of the week. So then it's two a.m. and uh, Jimmy's in the nail salon drinking cucumber water. He's not supposed to drink the cucumber water, and uh, and he calls That's for customers only. Customers only, Jimmy. He uh, he calls Kim, and. Uh, we think maybe he's trying to talk dirty to her, or he he plays it off like that's the, might be the plan. But really, he's trying to get info on where the Kettlemans have stashed their their uh, stolen one point six million dollars, and uh, so being devious, we've seen he's 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 thinking about calling Nacho, I guess, and then he calls her, and he, uh, it's pretty uh, creepy. But then he 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 uh, lets slip that uh, maybe the family could be in danger. Uh, which is a, a bad screw up because she latches onto it and says, "What do you mean? You, she she paid way too much attention, and he has to has to act like it was no big deal. He's just drunk. He's just thinking." See, I didn't take that as him letting it slip. I took that as him pretending to let it slip on purpose, and then not wanting to explain himself when she called him on it. Because he very deliberately, he kept trying to bring it up. He kept trying to talk about the Kettlemans and trying to get her to to kind of follow his thinking. And then when he and when he finally brought that up, he was like. He was doing that on purpose. I thought that he really was trying to uh, get some information that he might be able to give Nacho if he broke down and went along with Nacho's plan. I think he called her out of guilt because he's looking at Nacho's number and he was thinking about Nacho and his, he made the decision to call Kim. Yeah. Meaning he's trying to call her to warn her without letting her know that he knows what he knows through these kind of ill-gotten right. means. Like he doesn't want to say to her he's in league with the crook, but he does want her to know there's a threat. That does make sense. At the end of the conversation, when he doesn't think she took the bait, um, that's when he decides he needs to warn the Kettlemans himself because he doesn't think that he sufficiently warned them through through her. What he really wants to do is 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 avoid the, something bad happening to the Kettlemans, but he also wants to avoid Nacho being mad at him, you know? So he's hoping he can, like, head it off without it seeming like he ratted on Nacho. For some reason, I went into it thinking he's actually thinking about getting in on Nacho's plan, and then in order to get more information, he starts trying to wheedle something out of her, and then he just sort of accidentally says that they might be in danger. But I guess we can't know for sure, but I agree you may be right. Maybe my interpretation is of him trying to do the right thing, and and your interpretation is of him uh, like almost talking himself into doing the wrong thing. But either way, when he gets off the phone, uh, it continues to bother him, and he decides, I've got to warn the Kettlemans that something may be coming. And he fashions a sort of a kazoo from a paper towel tube and tissue paper, and... uh, uh, calls him on a payphone and tries to say they're coming for your money. You're in danger, <laughs> but it's so obscured uh, you can't understand a word of it. And uh, that was the biggest laugh to me in the episode. Um, and finally, he gives up and uh, uh, just blurts it out. That whole sequence where he decides to do that, where he decides again, which again comes off of the call with Kim, where he's deciding this this isn't working. I need to do something else. I need to warn them. Um, and he goes and he fashions this thing. It was fun. Again, I don't want to always point out the show reminding me of Breaking Bad, but um, I also don't want to have to always point out that I'm pointing that out. 
it reminded me of the way Walt would do something, like a scheme. Yeah. You know, he was kind of MacGyvering this thing. But of course, it ends up being for nothing. Like he ends up taking this effort. It's something that doesn't work. But before we leave the nail salon entirely, I just wanted to mention a couple little things about that. The visual interest of him being in the nail salon is such a great thing. Like a normal legal drama, the office scenes would be them milling about some well-appointed office, you yeah, know, yeah. and it would just be boring to the eye. But this is a scene of him lounging around a closed-down nail salon, just w- being the only person there. I mean, it's great that we see him getting some some uh, cucumber water when we know he's not allowed to take that during the day. But it's also great <laughs> just seeing just seeing the visuals of him in that place where he's you know he's making his he's he's drinking his drink at night and thinking about what to do with his case or thinking about what to to do to get himself out of hot water but he's in this environment that's not really his yeah. and the other thing i want to say about that is he he's living there i was i don't know if it was clear to me before this episode that he appears to live in that crappy little room in the back of the salon i did not know that before well it's it's still not completely clear to me either he could go sleep at chucks uh but maybe he does uh, we know that he can pull out his bed and have a nap at at the office so maybe he does uh, stay there and live there. And, and, oh, the other thing to say about this scene, I just looked at my notes. There's one other thing. Uh, there's a line that he says that to me, again, it's one of those questions we have that we're talking about. Like how much uh, is this guy an admirable character? How much is he a, a Weasley character? Is that part where he gets off the phone with Kim? And did you catch what he said? He said, I'm no hero. Right. I'm no hero. He's trying to, and, he's, he's, he's trying to say, I don't need to call the Kettleman's. And then he turns around and decides, I do need to call the Kettleman's. I think it's, yeah, a combination of I don't need to do this, but I will, or I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not almost like an, a tacit admission that he has not yet done the right thing. That just by dropping that hint to Kim, he wasn't, he, he wasn't absolved from his role in the situation. You know, he's, right. this whole situation is still rolling forward because of a few little things he's done. <laughs> yeah. A few dots he connected. Yeah. So uh, it, it is interesting to see the, the mire that he's, he's getting into, and you can see how it gets uh, even more complicated. So, yeah, that great nighttime scene. I thought the scene where they – I mean, I would honestly say that the suspense of what was happening with the Kettlemans and Nacho, the way that unfurled with them looking out and seeing the van, and we seem to think, you know, what we're thinking at that point in the story, I thought that was a great – uh, 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 tightening of the screws on the tension here. Like you, you do sort of wonder: is something really bad going to happen to somebody? Um, on right. on you know, and, and it and it be Jimmy's fault. It's still that's still like to me a gathering storm in terms yeah. of the the like the the moral spectrum of this show is going to be when is he when is he culpable for something truly horrible? Because at this yeah. point, he's really sort of tried not to tried not to be culpable of, for something really horrible underneath. This savvy guy who knows the law and knows about human nature and can guess what people are going to do and things. You know, that's kind of how we mainly know him. But now here's some good glimpses of him as just a, as a screw-up person who is bumbling and messes up in life and, you know, in a, in a big way uh, when he's in, in the flashback. And then here, just in a small, silly way, trying something on the spur of the moment that doesn't work. You know, it's like... To me, that that lays more character down as as this uh, kid who just uh, acts rashly, doesn't do things uh, properly, screws up, but then has learned the ins and outs of uh, the law and of uh, how people are going to act and how to guess at what they might do and everything. You know, so he's he's gained a lot of knowledge, but he's still that uh, goofball. And then we go to the next day at the uh, courthouse. He's willing and dealing in the bathroom with the prosecuting lawyer. And then Kim calls. While he inhales his BM, which is straight yes. from Satan's bunghole. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I just wanted to get 
past that, I could I could imagine it too vividly. Um, I just love that the, something you said last time about how Jimmy cracks jokes where he doesn't need to make a joke. Like right. he did that several times this week too. He said, "Did you eat the whole roast beast?" Which right. is just a silly thing to say. You know, just, I mean, again, it's like it's gross, and it. I, yeah, I don't want to dwell on it either. But I thought it was funny that even in that moment, uh, Jimmy is is that guy. He has little asides. Those things that come to, into his head, he lets them out, and very often it's a thing that's just going to make life worse for him. You know, the chances that it's mm-hmm. going to make the other person laugh are so slim, and instead it's going to show him off as as a a flippant person who is not taking everything seriously that they're taking seriously. So You're right. He has yet to be around anyone who seems to appreciate his sense of humor. <laughs> right. He tries jokes all the time, but almost never gets any encouragement for right. it. Right. Or never, ever. I don't remember one time yet. Kim, she seems to tolerate him with some They affection. have a little banter. She calls uh, when he's in the bathroom and uh, seems to let on that the, the kettleman's been kidnapped. So uh, he goes to rush out, but uh, Mike won't let him out of the uh, parking lot, of course, without the proper stickers, because those are the rules. And Jimmy gets fed up, and he reaches into the booth and pushes the button himself to uh, to make the arm go up. And he peels out and goes, screw you, geezer. <laughs> Which is so wrong when it's Mike. <laughs> you know, it's like, you don't say that to Mike. Right. I loved Mike's expression. Uh, right. uh, uh, we sat there analyzing his expression, and that little eyebrow goes up that suggests that in some strange way, Mike started to respect him a little bit for doing that uh, it's almost a completely blank face but i took it to mean now you've it done was it. now you've done it and oh you just made things more interesting you know <laughs> right right and we do see later that mike maybe gains a little uh respect this scene to me answered our big question about mike from the last episode which is why is he victimizing saul he comes out and says it he says i'm not making you do anything those are the rules yeah we've been seeing him look like he was victimizing Saul for these little minor infractions. But really, probably what's been happening is most people validate their ticket on the way out. <laughs> and right. Saul just doesn't. Of course. It does seem, I would say at this point, that Mike is an ex-cop who works in a parking lot. Yeah, we've had no other indication yet. So Jimmy speeds over to the Kettleman's. He uh, finds out that the whole family is missing. And has to uh, try to tell Kim that it was just a coincidence that he guessed they were in danger. And then he leaves there and... You know, we know that Jimmy knows Nacho's phone number and a lot about these circumstances. He could tell the cops, but then he'd be putting himself in a lot of danger. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing, again, he's he's being a hero here. He's going to, uh, he stops at a payphone to call Nacho and try to uh, negotiate uh, for the Kettlemans and save their lives, maybe. You know, he's he's somebody who, at least in the past, has wanted to gain the system and figure out how to get... Uh, something for nothing, but we're seeing what line he doesn't cross when it comes to somebody getting hurt. He doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want pe- anybody to be physically killed. <laughs> so uh, when when that seems like it's with the twins and here, he's like, I've got to start. I've got to. I've got to step in and try to do something to save them. So then he leaves this uh, uh, series of messages for Nacho uh, that just get uh, more and more embarrassing and stupid and it's kind of like the scene in swingers you know it's just like she's just stop leaving these messages yeah and, and and it evolves from the point where it's like you can tell that he's trying hard not to say anything that would legally get him in trouble if someone right. played it later right. but you can also tell that he's afraid he didn't explain himself well enough and i liked their little device of this is a goofy little thing to bring up but instead of it being a 555 number it's 146 something so so uh it's like this is wonderful after 
30 years or however long we've been going with every TV and movie constantly having to have 555 numbers, here's a little elegant solution. Even though, uh, you know, obviously it's fake too. No number can start with a one, but it just sounds so much more like a phone number. And it just, every time I hear 555, it takes me out of a story. And this took me out a little less, even though obviously I was thinking about it too. The other thing to mention is Nacho's outgoing message. Nacho, leave it. I, I want to have an outgoing message that is that to the point. You have to be a gangster. So finally, uh, the phone rings back, the payphone rings back, and, and, and nobody's there. And Jimmy is, uh, uh, he's leaving, but his car won't start. And then these guys start creeping up on him from different directions. Uh, and then they chase him down in the alley, and it turns out uh, that it's the cops. The cops were just listening to Nacho's messages at that point. Exactly. So, probably... so that makes sense for the cops. So they they turned out they were listening to all these messages, and uh, they came to get this guy who obviously knew something about it. And then they see Jimmy's ID, and they say, "Oh, this is the uh, lawyer that Nacho's been asking for." As they throw him down, you know, he he says, "I've got bad knees," which is a callback to. The first episode he was in, I believe, where where Walt and Jesse have him out in the desert, and and it's you know they they have him on his knees, and that's how he gets to stand up and turn around and talk to them rather than you know be on his knees with his back to them, right? Uh, which is part of how he you know cuts a deal with them. Right. So it's it, it was a call back to that, but also I I suggest uh, perhaps a call back to Slippin' Jimmy because if he was faking all those injuries, slipping around on the ice, you know, it's like you don't you, you know even the great uh, physical comedians had had joint problems right. later in life. So even if you're trying to fall, you're probably still kind of hurting yourself a little bit. So he comes to see Nacho in jail, and uh, which kind of mirrors the opening scene of of Chuck coming to see him in jail, and uh, we learn that uh, Nacho was casing the place, uh, but seemingly really didn't do it, and uh, and horribly he wants to kill Jimmy if Jimmy doesn't get him out today. So. Scary stuff. Uh, well, I mean, it's in that scene, you kind of start to see Nacho's identity a little bit. You see that he's definitely an intimidating guy, and and we don't we don't see him as being like quite as crazy as as Tuco, you know. But he's right. got that no nonsense aspect to him. Well, and he really does probably think what he said, that, which is that that Jimmy, uh, you know, gave this plan to some other crew and is trying to. Uh, send Nacho up for the crime. You know, it's all this conspiracy against him. It starts off with Nacho saying, I didn't do it. Then Jimmy has that thought in his head. In the next scene where he goes to the house and Kim takes him in and lets him look at the house, um, uh, uh, you know, it, you can see his wheels turning. And I do agree with you, even though I'm on the side of Jimmy's trying to do the right thing. I do think he's also thinking, wait, wait, wait. He's putting it together at the same time. He's 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 pulling towards, oh, this is sad, I hope nothing bad happened to these people. I hope it's not my fault. But he's also thinking, why would Nacho lie to me that way? Right. You know, like right. Uh, so, so uh, it just it, it is interesting the way that that's just building because he has a lot of reasons in that moment to maybe be open to the suggestion that it's not as simple as it looks that they don't necessarily have their guy. Um, right. You know, even knowing what he knows about the blood in the car being belonging to the skateboarding twins and and all that stuff. So it was it was very. I thought that scene was really interesting the way that it. Again, there's there's layers to this onion, and 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 it's, we're starting to get to the point already where everything is so incredibly tangled about like who knows what and who's able to put together what, you know? Yeah. yeah. And in an odd way, Jimmy Bumbler, though he is, he's the guy who seems to hold most of the information. I mean, he's the nexus for all the plot points. So so we see that he is like the one guy who has the the whole big picture, which is why I think it's so frustrating to him in this episode that nobody believes him. You know? Right. He's the secret center of this whole uh, plot. But then I love outside, he tells Kim how he uh, anonymously warned the Kettlemans, and uh, 
She says, uh, you didn't do the sex robot voice, did you? <laughs> so, obviously, the uh, paper towel tube has a, a, a weird history behind it. Whatever it's been between them, it's been something and not nothing. Then he goes back and like, that whole stretch towards the end of the episode with Mike was some of my favorite stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. He show. goes back to, to uh, the courthouse and he's trying to get into the lot. And Mike says, just park somewhere else because he's still mad. And Jimmy uh, gets out and says, what, are you going to gum me to death, geezer? And goes to poke his chest. And, of course, Mike uh, takes him down with a, uh, you know, Vulcan nerve pinch to the wrist or whatever you call it, cop move. And uh, <laughs> we go to commercial and we come back and, and now they're inside with the detectives and uh, and and the detectives want uh, Mike to press charges against Jimmy so that they can find out all he knows about Nacho. And he agrees to do it. But then he sees that Jimmy is sticking to his story uh, about Nacho being innocent uh, or the Kettleman's... Uh, uh, kidnapping themselves, and uh, and Mike decides not to press charges, uh, disappointing the detectives. And uh, uh, then Jimmy gets to talk to Mike in the stairwell, and uh, he learns that Mike is an ex-cop now. And uh, and Mike theorizes that they stayed in the neighborhood, seemingly uh, very wisely. I also thought that like Mike was sort of ready to just be done with this lawyer who's been such a pain in his ass um, until the cop touched him and said let's go do some good i don't know if you caught that little look like after when they were going back down the hall he said let's go do some good and he touched mike's shoulder yeah jimmy pokes him and gets his arm twisted around his back that cop grabs his shoulder and they lose their backup for the scheme they're trying to do with with strong arming jimmy into into i don't know giving him some information that he can't give him because there's no information but they don't know that i thought that was a great little beat because it really played like the cops were acting like such presumptuous jerks in that moment that Mike, you see him reading the situation and you see him sort of tilting towards Jimmy in a weird way through that whole scene because he's like, oh, wait a minute, I don't like these cops. Right. And as annoying as this lawyer is, I've only ever seen him scramble and scrounge and try to do something. You know what I mean? Like, I do think at this point, there's a lot that has fed into Mike just kind of being like, I don't want to be any more trouble for this. Even if he's thinking, I don't want to be in any more trouble for this loser, um, I think that he feels more on the side of the loser than the the cops that are that are pushing him around. For Mike, it seems like it's a whole big ball of, ah, screw these guys, you know? like uh, Right, like they condescended to him just a little bit, and it, that kind of leads into him falling away from them. Because it really did feel like a, a uh, what did uh, Jimmy call him? Cagney and Lacey. It really felt like Cagney <laughs> and Lacey kind of press. They pressed their advantage with Mike, and and it you can see automatically at the end of this scene, you start to see the beginnings of what I see as a friendship being forged, or at least a non antagonistic, you know, uh, relationship. That was very meaningful to me, knowing that again we know these guys are going to be in cahoots in some way. Bet they stay, you know, at least somewhat adversarial for a long time because I like their I like their dynamic as it is, and they can still be working together, but also, you know, looking at each other from other sides of the fence. Well, they're both at their funniest, maybe, when they're talking to each other. Mike's not going to waste any breath. Like, I love when the cops were trying to guilt him or or question his manhood. They were like, oh, you were going to do the right thing for us, and now you're going to puss out when he's leaving. And he looks at him, and instead of saying something like, I'm not pussing out, you know, or whatever, he says, my loss, I guess, and starts to walk away. I mean, like, Mike yeah. really can't, he really can't be bothered. Right. Um, I wonder if already he's thinking, I just want to leave some money for my daughter and her child or whatever. Like, I wonder if that's already just his, his one thing is trying to live out his days so that he can have this, you know, relationship with his family or something. Right, right. Have some kind of little nest egg. That's probably is it. So uh, based on, on Mike's theory, Jimmy goes to snoop around the Kettleman's. 
he sees a sticker on their car, one of those family stickers, and they have a, a camping tent on the sticker. And, the, and so he, he goes to the backyard and sees there's a trail leading out of the backyard. And he starts walking, walks for hours out in the wilderness, and finally finds the tent in the woods. And he busts in and says, here's Johnny, as we mentioned. And, uh, yes. Uh, and, of course, uh, I don't know why he's so overconfident and thought, I can just convince them to walk home now. Uh, but for some reason he thought that, and uh, that doesn't work at all, and they start tussling over the bag, and as soon as that happens, you know what's going to happen. The bag tears open, and $1.6 million flies out all over the tent. And and that's where we're left this episode. You can see how, once again, it's not just a question of what is Jimmy going to do, but how is he going to work within the constraints of the situation that he created by calling Kim. A very smart right. thing to have done, because your thought would be, well, you got to call somebody first so that if they do beat you up or kill you or something, you know, that someone knows. But like, right. I thought that was really interesting. It's like it instantly creates a quandary going into the next episode. And I did read an interview with uh, Thomas Schnauz, the writer for the uh, both shows, who, who wrote this one. And he said that they, in the writer's room, one of the mandates was that it ever, leave every episode with Jimmy having a choice. Yeah, you can tell right in, in the top of the next episode, he's going to have to figure out what what in the world to do. Well, I mean, the very, yeah, the next minute's got to be him saying to them, uh, well, all right, here, what are we going to do? Or them saying, here, take some money, just let us go. I will say, here's my other, I said I had two complaints. There was bad hair, and I will say that as funny as it was that the Kettleman's uh, singing uh, campfire songs, oblivious to their children's uh, hatred for them, <laughs> right? Was was a little broad. It was funny to me. I liked it, but it was like, okay, this is a little like you would, you know what I mean? It made them into uh, slightly more comic characters than almost anyone else yeah. on the show cartoon, in my mind. Even though, even, even, though, even though Jimmy is a walk and talk and like, but a Jimmy, it's built into his character that he's this guy who talks and makes jokes. These yeah. were yes, these were sketch comedy characters. In this world, however, I still found it funny, and it did add to the Kettlemans as characters. Like I did, be- I sort of understand who they are a little right. bit more now. They and really, heard, they yeah. really are squares. You know, they really are dorks. And we heard their outgoing message, Team Kettleman. So yeah, we right. know that's their thing. And yeah, that is pretty uh, flat and cartoony. But I think it's it's tempered by that. This is a pretty, this is a somewhat broad world still. And uh, and and I do still believe that you know if if for some reason we get more time with any of them, we'll learn. You know, the mom would be no, more nuanced. It, it, there is a little nuance in it. I feel like the big kid, uh, the boy, is uh, uh, fed up and doesn't want to be here. And the and but the little girl might be okay and happy to sing camp songs right now. Uh, but uh, but also, I feel there's a little nuance just in the dad's face. You know, every time you see him looking around and thinking and sweating, uh, that that gives him a little more complexity. You know, he's not just a plain old goofball. He's really uh, struggling with all this. Well, yeah, I, I would say that in general, they're well cast. The actors are doing a fine job. I'm not saying that they have been flat and cartoony the whole time. I'm saying literally, the even though I loved that he's looking for them and they're singing bingo, yeah. that just was so fantastic. It's the kind of thing that I would hope I would think of if I was writing this type of show. It's like, go ahead and let it be that extra bit of clever that you, you, know, you literally might expect the character to say bingo or for you to be thinking bingo when he finds him. But no, he doesn't say bingo, but that's what they're singing. I didn't even think of that. The, uh, the Kettlemans are nuanced enough. Like you can see a little threat in her eyes when, when he finds them, a little 
like I almost feel like, and you even see on on the the on Craig's face too. You see a little bit of anger and a little bit of you could believe that maybe there's a guy who would attack Jimmy, and maybe that's what will happen in the next episode. Is he's going to have to escape them or something like that? We don't know, but I will say that yes, there's a threat of them being uh, a little bit darker. And I'm saying if they turn out to be sociopaths who are dorks, I think that's fine. We already know now that this innocent, naive seeming couple are actually behind you know, staging their own kidnapping and all that stuff. So yes, they're not, they're not garden variety rubes anyway. Right. But they are dweeby. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention about that little scene is, did you notice the way she disciplined the son? Did you notice that she snapped her finger and he kind of stopped complaining? No. (laughs) He was like, when, when he said, we'll go back to civilization and the son said, finally, or something like that. Yeah. And then she just snapped her finger and kind of half looked at him and snapped her finger and he just stopped. And it just suggested this whole discipline method. And like, again, just being a parent and talking to other parents, I, you know, I could believe someone would have the method where you snap your finger and your kid knows that means stop or whatever. Uh, It felt like, okay, we can, uh, one more, again, I feel like uh, she, she read a book somewhere or something that's like the, here's how you train a child. You know, she stuck to it. It feels very Kettleman. And it's funny that, you know, they're, they're characters now. I was hoping they would be. And, you know, I think you're right. They're good. They're, their faces are interesting. Um, and and they fit in with this world. And, and they seem like a new color in this world. It could be in a few weeks we may have a real strong idea of what they're made of and, and, and what their struggle is or something, you know. Well, that takes us through the whole story. What would be any, any parting thoughts you might have about the, the episode? I think we've covered it. It just it feels encouraging that uh, this episode that seems... Like you said, a little more uh, typical of what we're going to be getting as we move forward uh, was still a really fun episode. And uh, it seems like they've set up so much for us to uh, uh, get into and work out. And I know it's going to get more and more complicated as we go on. And so, uh, you know, I don't see any any major problems going forward. I wonder how how much and how fast we'll learn about the uh, uh, that opening flashback uh, from that era, uh, if at all. when we'll get to know more about what, what they were hinting at. Another thing that that writer Thomas Schnauz said in that interview was that they realized at some point that they could they had this whole time span they could pull from and that they didn't need to define what a flash forward was going to be or what a flashback was going to be or what the cold open was going to mean for the episode or whatever. And it's like, I think they're pretty committed to the idea that we're seeing the through line. When, when you get into the episode, you're watching 2002. You're watching that version of Jimmy. Right. But as far as how the cold open sets you up or what it feeds into or what it suggests, it can be, you know, they can pull a vignette from any period. And, and you know, there's visual shorthand they can use to make us know, like the giant phone or the bad wigs or whatever. But if they ever cut to him in the office that we know Saul Goodman has and Huell comes in or something like that, you know, you're going to be like, oh, we know when this is happening, you know. So it's, I think they've got a lot to play with as far as that is concerned. And it's so interesting. I mean, it's so interesting that the show is that wide open. And I, when they were talking about it and they would say, well, it's kind of a prequel, but it's kind of a sequel and it kind of takes place during, I was like, what the hell are they talking about, you know? <laughs> Yeah. But now I see I see what they mean, and it's like, yeah, yeah th- right. this 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 does have a lot of different eras that can inform each other. And I had no idea we were going to go back further than 2002, Jimmy. Yeah, that was just an extra an extra little gift in this episode. Oh, before we go, I just want to say I'm glad that the show explicitly acknowledged Bugs Bunny in relation to Albuquerque because I always think of that anytime I hear the word Albuquerque, and it's almost like they admitted that, yes, we all know, that of, of, if anybody knows anything about Al- Albuquerque, it's because they knew <laughs> what Bugs Bunny used to say about it. Right, and I don't know if they've done that in all of Breaking Bad. I don't know if they have either. 
I mean, maybe someone said we took a wrong turn in one episode and we didn't notice it, you know? Um, yeah. But um, also the spelling thing. I do think it's one of those. It's like it's like ukulele where you really have to look at it and go, wait. Hmm. Is that too many U's? No, that's <laughs> just the right amount of U's. <laughs> yeah. And as far as our audience, I think we have just the right amount of U's out there listening to. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that was horrible. It's a terrible segue. But um, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can uh, reach us on Twitter at, at Saul underscore searching. You may not have noticed, but we did live tweet the show on uh, on uh, Monday night. Um, I actually tried to make a reference to cucumber water and for some reason typed coconut water and had to be corrected by a nice follower. on uh, Or I guess someone who saw the tag... Better Call Saul on Twitter. So I've now been corrected on Twitter. I know. It was very exciting. And it felt silly because I actually thought about the spelling of coconut. Like, am I spelling coconut right? Yep, I am. And, you know, it's just one of those times the wrong the wrong word came to my mind. I, you know, I don't think those were coconuts floating in the water. Those were quite <laughs> apparently cucumber slices. You can also write us uh, at our Gmail address. That's saulsearching at gmail.com. And, in fact, Chris, I'm looking now at the mailbag. I'm opening it up. And we do have three emails in our uh, in our mailbox here, wow. three new mails. Cool. They're all from a fan named Gmail Team, and the subjects are mm. stay more organized with Gmail's inbox. That sounds interesting. Huh. The best of Gmail wherever you are, and three tips to get the most out of Gmail. I feel like we don't really need to read those those particular emails in the show. Maybe we'll cover those next time. Okay, sounds good. All right, man. Hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.